You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. All I have to do is pick up the slow rolling ground ball. But, again, I'm wrong. 
impressive. So I charge this ball hard. I am sprinting hard into the infield. I lean over to try to grab it, and all of a sudden, I fall. And I have no idea what happened. But my hat flies off, my beautiful white jersey gets stained green, and so now there's a clear reminder of the embarrassment. Laughing starts coming from my dugout. Cactus shadows, they're kind of chuckling under their breath as they watch this happen, and I have no idea how this happened. And as I'm kind of coming to my senses on the ground, I notice my shoelace has been expanded. It's huge, this big old loop. And what I've learned now, put together in my head, is that my cleat got caught in my shoelace as I was sprinting and forced me to tumble into the dirt. And I will never lose this down. Anybody who played baseball with me in high school remembers that this was a thing in infield outfield against Cactus Shadows. I was so focused on obtaining the praise and respect of the people that were watching me that I failed to do a very simple thing. The thing that I was actually supposed to do, I missed because I was so focused on getting power, looking impressive, looking praiseworthy in front of other people. And Jesus warns us that something similar can start to happen in our spiritual lives. In this next installment in our series, we're calling, Whoa! Whoa! I love, I love the exclamation point. You've got to emphasize, right? Whoa! We're going to hear Jesus' words to the devoutly religious folks of his time, the Pharisees. He exposes to them that excessive pride has started to creep into their lives, and it's worked through their religion. He's showing them that they're emphasizing earning praise and respect from others primarily, that that is their motivation, and it's corrupting what is supposed to be a vibrant and living faith. Jesus is showing them that their way of living, which we're going to refer to throughout the rest of the morning as the way of the throne, their way of living is ultimately bringing death and destruction to them and to everyone else around And Jesus instead models for us in his life, death, and resurrection a different way of being, the way of the cross. So let's dig into this passage and see how Jesus is doing this. If you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the Gospel of Luke. This is the third book in the New Testament. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 43 and reading through verse 44. We're going to have it up on the screen if you'd like to follow along there as well. Luke 11, 43 through 44. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without realizing it. This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I heard somebody tangibly react. Oof. Heavy words from Jesus. Uh, the synagogue in Jesus' day was the primary religious gathering space for first century Jews, and it had a particular layout, a particular structure to it that involved a certain seating arrangement. There were seats set up in the front of the room, very similar to what I have set up here. These were the seats of honor that Jesus was referring to. And these were reserved for the most holy people, which me sitting there makes you think, well, you should be in that seat. <laughs> the most holy, the most worthy people sat here and faced the congregation, and they were visible to everyone in the room. Everyone in the room knew that these people sitting in the seats of honor were the greatest, were elevated over and against the other people. In the marketplaces that Jesus mentions here, those weren't religious spaces, they were more social spaces. This is where people gathered from all over ancient towns and cities. It was where a lot of hub happened, a lot of activity happened. And so that meant that if you were greeted with respect in those places, everyone saw it. These were two places where if you spent time and were recognized as elevated or respected, everyone would see it. It was a way of earning power in that culture. Everyone would look at the Pharisees in the seats of honor and in the marketplaces and say, they've got their stuff 
put together. Jesus is saying here that they're seeking the religious and social public spaces where they can receive the most praise and the most respect and earn power from those places. And notice Jesus says that they love pursuing these things. That word love is important. I don't want to overlook it. He's talking about the heart space of these people. See, the Pharisees did a lot of great outer religious actions. They were really religiously impressive. They prayed, they tithed, they served, right? But ultimately, they were motivated by the wrong thing. Jesus is saying that the inner motivations, the inner parts of who you are, are crucial in a life of faith. What they were doing is putting on a good show so they could be elevated in the eyes of others. This is the way of the throne. The way of the throne is a method of obtaining religious and social praise in order to gain power, prestige, and self-importance. It's built upon the self, and it's always going to consist of pride, self-justification, self-elevation, and self-definition. The Pharisees were pursuing the way of the throne, and Jesus doesn't mince words when he sees this dynamic happening in them. He says, woe to you. And woe is not a word that we use very often in English, kind of out of our, our typical nomenclature, our typical language. Uh, but it's actually a pretty simple word. It simply means disaster or despair. He's saying that when you pursue the way of the throne, when you pursue religious or social prestige or power through the praise of other people, it will bring death and destruction to you and everyone around you. And it can be easy when we hear this, especially from Jesus, to think we're standing with him over here and looking at the Pharisees over there. Kind of sit behind Jesus, like, yeah, yeah. Point fingers at the Pharisees, But the reality is, if we really examine our lives, we find we're much closer to the Pharisees than we are to Jesus, quite often, especially in our religious spaces. I think there's three main ways that the way of the throne continues to trip us up as religious people today. The first way it trips us up in the infield, trips us up is that it uh, causes us to elevate and platform people who look or sound or seem impressive. We do that in our church spaces all the time. And in doing that, we're encouraging the way of the throne. We're encouraging gaining power based on your outer impressiveness. Christians love to celebrate people who put on good public displays of piety. People who express their religion loudly. We put them in our seats of honor and in our marketplaces. We feature them. An example of this. What are the two questions that most church-going people ask when they leave a service to evaluate whether that service was good or bad? There's two questions they ask. Did I like the sermon? Did I like the music? You see the veiled question underneath those questions? Was the production impressive to me or not? Was the thing at the front of the room impressive to me? If it wasn't, then I'm going to move on. And so churches get in this uh, culture of putting impressive people in the front because they want people to walk away thinking that was impressive. Those are the questions on people's minds, and so that causes a church dynamic that says, I want to put impressive people in the front all the time. We do this with pastors. Think about what pastors are often praised for. Their dynamic speaking ability. The books they've written. The degrees they've earned. The size of their ministries. I've been to ministry conference after ministry conference, and the biographies always have a degree, a name of a church, and probably the size of that church, and the many books that people have written. That's what we highlight in church culture. 
But do you guys know what the word pastor actually means? Shepherd? In the ancient world, the shepherd was a lowly profession, a humble profession. It was one of those things that, like, if you couldn't really do anything else, you did this. Shepherds have hard work to do. Shepherds are overlooked. Shepherds are not in seats of honor. But we made pastors into something different because our church culture has often followed the way of the throne. Now, I want to be clear. It's not bad to have a pastor who speaks well. It's not bad to have an incredibly talented musician like Stephen Lumpkin standing at the front of your room. That's not bad. Excellence is not a bad thing. But if, if outer excellence is the measure of the person, and if that's the criteria that determines what uh, validates their ability to speak, then we've got a problem. Because we put charisma before character. We've put outer impressiveness before a deeply formed person. To illustrate this another way, how often do you hear someone leave a church or a ministry setting asking this question? Did my church or pastor illustrate the fruit of the Spirit today? Did this person illustrate love or grace? Did they illustrate kindness or patience? Did they illustrate faithfulness or gentleness or self-control? I don't hear many people talking about that when they leave a church service. I don't hear many people thinking about how the community has illustrated the fruit of the Spirit. Friends, if our descriptions of a good pastor or a good ministry have more to do with their outer impressiveness than with the fruit of the Spirit of God, there's a good chance we follow the way of the throne in what we're doing. We want to see people who illustrate who Jesus is to us. That's the role of these churches. That's the role of these ministries. And if I ever fail to do that, if people in this place ever fail to do that, you have a valid quality, regardless of whether they're impressive or not. So this way of the throne can trip us up through that, through that pursuit of highlighting or elevating impressed people, but it trips us up in other ways too. We often tend to emphasize outer accomplishments rather than the Christ-like methods that we use to get those accomplishments in churches. Remember, the way of the throne is concerned with gaining power and prestige through praise and respect of other people. And if that's the goal, then success will always be tied to more praise, to more measurable, obvious praise and respect. That means that when we think about success, oftentimes in the church, we look at tangible outer measurements of praise. Success in church context is often shown through numeric growth. How many people showed up to praise our structure? How many people showed up on a Sunday or showed up to an event to elevate what we're doing? I go to ministry conferences often, have been throughout my life, uh, and there's two main questions that often get asked at those conferences, to me and in some of the breakout sessions. The first question is, how big is your ministry? Second question is, how are you making it bigger? How big is your ministry? How are you making it bigger? And it creates this really ugly dynamic. Over 90% of churches in America right now have less than 100 people attending that church on an average Sunday morning. And yet most of the people we platform are people who have thousands of people going to their churches. That's a problem. Because that's not what most of ministry looks like in America. That's not what most of church culture looks like in America. We highlight people who have outer success as if that, that proves their faith. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. They were ends sort of people, or results sort of people. And their outer results were often good. 
Tithing and prayer and fasting, all good religious things, right? But inside, they were motivated by well, corrupt pursuit of the way of the throne. They were using the wrong means to accomplish their religious ends. Friends, to Jesus and the scriptures, it's never just about what you do. It's about how you do it. And it's about who you are as you do it. The means are just as crucial as the ends. Success in the kingdom of God is embodying God's character as his image bearer and partnering with him to bring love and justice and peace and grace to the world. That's the measure of success. And oftentimes, that doesn't outwardly look very successful. There are all sorts of scriptural examples of people who outwardly seem to fail, who we believe are some of the most faithful people that have ever lived. The Old Testament prophets. God told Isaiah, when he said, you're going to proclaim my message to Israel, he said, they're not going to listen to you. Before he even started, he said, they have ears, but they're not going to hear. They have eyes, but they're not going to see. Isaiah's like, cool, sweet, thanks, right? I'm going to have an utter, outer failure of a life, but I'm going to be faithful to the love and grace and peace and justice of God. The measurement was not outer success. The measurement was not numeric growth. The measurement was faithfulness to the character of God. All of the prophets were ignored, and many of them were killed. That looks like a failure to the world, and it's a success in the kingdom. Paul, the apostle Paul, measures a church's success never in the New Testament based on numbers. You will never find Paul in any of his letters to the early churches saying, good job, you guys reached 100 people. Good job, you had 50 baptisms. He never uses that measure. The only measurement that Paul uses is faithfulness to the love and grace of Jesus. Are you illustrating the gospel to the people around you? That's what matters. And friends, there's no greater example than Jesus himself, who ended his ministry with a shameful death on a cross. All of his disciples, all of the people he poured into throughout his ministry, they were gone. It was just John and a bunch of ladies, because the ladies knew they were smarter than that. That's how they had to figure it From an outward measurement standpoint, from a numeric growth standpoint, Jesus was an utter failure. And we would say that's the most successful thing that's ever happened as Christians. This doesn't, by the way, mean numbers are bad. I want to see Midtown grow. I want to see new people come to this place and come to know Jesus and embody Jesus' love to the world. I desire that. But we're not going to do that by forcing people into the room. And we're not going to know that we're doing that successfully because we have butts and seats. We're going to know we're doing that because we're seeing change in people's lives. We're going to know we're doing that because we're serving our neighbors. We're going to know we're doing that because we're faithful to who Jesus was. Those are our measurements, not numbers. And if we think that numbers are measurements of success, then we follow the way of the front. There's a third way that this trips us up as religious people today. We love to make church into a good show, a good production. Our church models and structures are often built on maintaining a certain level of production value that will please the audience out there. Not the congregation, the audience. There's a theologian who speaks about this in one of his books. He mentions that when he worked on a, a church staff a couple decades before, he now works at a university, he worked on a church staff and he talked about what their staff meetings typically consisted of, the conversations they typically had. Here's three of the main things they talked about each week. Uh, the lighting for Sunday morning. Were they going to look good on the stage? We need to make sure that the lighting was just right. But the decibel levels for sound, how was our music going to sound? 
There were even conversations on some weeks about artificially raising the decibel levels so that you could create a certain feeling in the chest of the people who were listening. So you could artificially create what would feel like a concert in the room. And then they always talked about seamless transitions and uh, seamless people standing up front to make sure everything went smoothly. And that meant you had to have certain gifts up front, certain people who are, look excellent and sound excellent and seem excellent. It was all about presenting and elevating a product so that people could show up and consume it and praise it. That was the idea that drove them. And that's not just a one-off. We like to think, like, oh, man, that's really ugly, right? Churches all over do this. This is a regular thing. There's a, a megachurch, head of a megachurch, founder of a megachurch that has campuses worldwide. And he is quoted in an interview as saying that the reason we do our sermons is to make people feel good when they leave. That's the goal of the sermons. We want to make people feel good, feel better when they leave than when they came. This is pervasive in our culture. We love outer praise. There's a good quote from a theologian named Warren Wiersbe who summarizes what happens when we do this. He says, when ministry becomes performance, then the sanctuary becomes a theater. The congregation becomes an audience. And worship becomes entertainment. And finally, man's applause and approval become a measure of success. That's the way of the throne. A prideful pursuit of praise for the sake of power and prestige in the eyes of others. And when those dynamics go unchecked and unaddressed in our church communities, Jesus tells us that they radiate dynamics of death and decay in everything we do. That's what he says in verse 44 here. He calls the Pharisees unmarked graves, which is sounds really serious. Like, I don't fully know what it means when I first read it in English, but it sounds serious. It's even more serious when you understand what he's saying. He's referencing, likely, Numbers 19, where there are certain restrictions given about, restrictions given about what it means to be clean or unclean when you approach God. Cleanliness was an important part of ritual purity at that time. And if you came in contact with a dead body, you were unclean. So it was really important when you buried the dead to mark graves clearly, so that if people came in contact with a grave or a dead body, they would know, oh, I'm unclean, and I need to make myself clean. Or, if they saw graves out there, they'd be able to avoid those and avoid becoming unclean. Because these graves, if they were left unmarked, would contaminate people and they wouldn't know. When Jesus calls the Pharisees unmarked graves here, he's saying that everyone who comes in contact with them is being contaminated by the way of the throne, and they don't even know it. If they're unmarked graves, they are radiating into the temple, into the synagogue, into the marketplaces, dynamics that are opposed to the kingdom of God, opposed to the life and the grace and the love of Jesus. They're taking a space intended to radiate God's purity, love, and grace and turning it into a defiled space that contaminates everything therein. And when we follow the way of the throne, we do the same thing in our churches. Right? When we only elevate the outwardly impressive people, we radiate dynamics of death and decay and darkness. When we orient our religious productions around the things that bring the most praise from our audience, we radiate death and destruction into our churches. When we fail to acknowledge our brokenness and focus more on maintaining an image, we radiate death and destruction into our churches. We build a church that contaminates every one of us. We become unmarked graves. And that's why so often 
people don't feel at home coming into the American church. Because they see people who look outwardly impressive. They see people desperately trying to maintain an image. They see a show. They're like, I mean, that looks like everything else out there. That looks like politicians I know. That looks like all of the brokenness that exists in my world. It's the same thing. So I don't really feel comfortable being vulnerable. I don't feel comfortable being known in this place. I don't feel comfortable to ask for forgiveness in this place. These people are all nicely put together. Thanks for no thanks. We radiate dynamics of death that push people away rather than towards the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And I realize as I say this, that right now, I, in the space I'm standing in, am in the seat of honor in our culture. You all are captive audience. I do walk out if you want. We haven't locked the doors. But, like, by and large, you're a captive audience that are paying attention to me. And it's always a temptation for anyone that stands here to pursue these things out of pride, out of desire for praise. And I know that when I critique these dynamics, it could, in a backwards way, start to make you praise me. I could critique other people so you think, man, Clint's got it figured out. This church has it figured out, right? I could participate in the way of the throne by critiquing the way of the throne. So I have to be really careful and really honest with you guys. So, to be clear, I am not free from this corruption, nor have I been free from this in my life. On my worst days, guys, I really want to look put together for you all so that you think, man, Clint, he's, he's really got it figured out. He buttons his shirt to the top. <laughs> On my worst days, I'm someone who thinks they actually know better than other people around me. Being married helps with that a lot. That's what I know. On my worst days, I'm someone who wants to measure success as a pastor based on how many of these seats are filled. And based on how many of you after the service say, great sermon. And so I have to build practices into my life, measures into my life, that remind me of why I'm doing this, that remind me of why we do what we do in the church. I have to pray regularly and return to God and say, God, give me your identity. Give me the identity of the beloved child independent of anything that I do or don't do. I have to build meditative and scriptural reading practices to remind myself that it's not about all the outward success that I pursue. I have to have accountability and confession with other people. I have to have other relationships with pastors who are trying to do this together alongside me. I have to know you all. I have to be vulnerable and honest with you all. The way of the throne can get to all of us, even in this amazing little community. And that means we need to have an alternative way. And thankfully, Jesus gives us one. It's the way of the cross. Jesus' entire life was devoted to a radically different way of being in the world, the way of the cross. This is a method of pursuing life by giving oneself away in sacrificial servant-hearted love, not seeking, based on pride, praise, or respect from others. This is the throne of humility built upon love for God and love for others. It's humble. It's self-sacrificing. It's generous. It's servant-hearted. It's a child showing up with what little money they have and dropping it into the box for the sake of everyone in this community. That's what it looks like. And Jesus' life illustrates this again and again. Remember where Jesus was born. The king of the universe, the God, the ruler of all things, was not born in a royal household. He was born in a feeding trough for animals. A manger. Humble location. And rather than taking an esteemed job in the culture, he took the job of a carpenter, a day laborer. 
Rather than pandering to religious people for praise, he served the last and the least and the lost. That's where his ministry was focused. Rather than taking over the political establishment, he became a lowly servant of others. Rather than affirming the rich and the wealthy so that he could be celebrated by them, he cared for those who couldn't repay the favor, the poor, the needy, and the crippled. At every turn of his life, Jesus was giving himself away for the sake of others, rather than pursuing self-elevation. And every time he did it, he reversed the way of the throne. He reversed the death and destruction that had gone into every part of the world, and he brought life and healing instead. Every time we pursue the way of the cross, we bring life and healing into a world that is full of death and destruction. Jesus exemplifies that for us, and his death was the ultimate expression of this. The world that pursued the way of the throne, that self-elevated and sought praise and power, they were the ones that murdered Jesus. They were the ones that hung on a cross. See, that's what the way of the throne does. It brings death and destruction, even when the source of life is in its midst. But here's what's radical about the way of the cross. Rather than responding to that death by condemning, Jesus took on the death by serving. He took on the death and destruction that all of us have wrought by chasing the way of the throne, and he instead puts it to death in his resurrection. The cross is Christ's becoming of the death and decay that have come to the world in the way of the throne, the absorption of our prideful pursuits, and then the resurrection and leaving of those things behind. Jesus says that true life, true, eternal, lasting life and authority doesn't come through self-elevation. It comes through self-sacrifice. It comes not through the way of the throne, but the way of the cross. And the result ultimately, for all of us, is a reception and participation in what Jesus has done. Jesus becomes king, not by chasing a seat of honor, but by becoming a servant. There's a theologian and philosopher named René Girard that talks about this. I've got a quote of his that's really powerful. He says, The God of Christianity isn't the violent God of archaic religion, but the non-violent God, who willingly becomes a victim in order to free us from our violence. The way of the cross is the path through death and into life. That's why Paul says what he says in Philippians 2. Listen to these words, guys. They're incredible. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus lived this way, because he embodied this, God exalts him and gives him the name that is above every name, so that at, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what exaltation looks like. It doesn't come through the elevation of myself in pride and praise and respect of others. It comes through self-emptying. It comes through giving myself away so that others can experience the love of God. The way of the throne seeks to obtain life on our own terms and instead ends up with death. The way of the cross dies to life on our own terms and ends up with true, lasting life. 
One is reaching, but will never grasp. The other is open-handed and will always receive. And so being Christian means to acknowledge that we've participated in the wrong way. We've chased after the way of the throne. It's to acknowledge that reality and then turn ourselves to the way of the cross and receive what Jesus has done for us on that cross. Receive it in our lives and then embody it in everything we do. The Christian allows the way of the cross to influence everything about them. They allow it to transform them. And when we do this, we ultimately bring life into a world of death. And if you ever are wondering how to make a decision, whether you're following the way of the throne or the way of the cross, always remember what the way of the cross looks like. Giving myself away. If my priorities are about only self-elevation and praise and respect, then I'm probably pursuing the wrong way. That's why George Walpole, a great bishop in England, said this. He said, if you are uncertain of which two paths to take, choose the one on which the shadow of the cross falls. If you're uncertain of which two paths to take, choose the one on which the shadow of the cross falls. So for some of you in this room, this might be an invocation to you to do this for the first time in your life. To say for the first time, God, I have chased the wrong way. And I receive your grace and forgiveness through the way of the cross and wish to live it in. For some of you, this might be the hundredth time or the thousandth time. It might be a new thing in your life that you realize I've been pursuing the wrong direction and I need to change. But whatever it looks like, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, know that Jesus is inviting you to be transformed and to transform the world out there. He's calling you to give up the way of the throne and embrace the way of the cross. Because it's only there that we can find true, lasting life. So the choice is ours. Which way will we take? Let's pray.